When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Nightmare on Film Street is brought to you by Baphomet & Co. Small batch soap inspired by horror and the macabre. This week's pick is the Dybbuk Box, the mystery gift set. Feeling brazen, curious, eager to conjure a little mystery? Baphomet & Co.'s Dybbuk Box contains an array of Baphomet & Co. curated scents, soaps, and bath products that will remain a complete mystery until the box arrives at your door. Get 10% off your order with the code NIGHTMARE at baphometandco.com. That's 10% off with code NIGHTMARE. Baphomet & Co. Made by hands, sometimes severed. Fellow fiends, welcome to another terrifying and delectable episode of Nightmare on Film Street. The horror podcast with zero credibility, but all of the blood, ghouls, and gore. Your puny heart can handle. <laughs> Let's give a grave welcome to our hosts, John and Kim. Hello again, fiends, and welcome to another episode of Nightmare on Film Street. I'm John. I'm Kim. And this week we are talking cold blooded killers with William Lustig's Maniac. And John McNaughton's Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Correction, John. We are talking controversial killers. Ooh, my mistake. We are talking controversial killers uh, because both of these movies, there are some controversial opinions, (laughs) even on this episode, uh, about their quality and need to exist. Not quality, just merit. (laughs) All right, well, you know, if you listened to last week's mini episode, I think you know exactly where we stand and, uh, you know, let uh, emotion get the best of me, maybe, last week. Point is, I'm very excited to talk about these movies. Uh, I was very excited to watch them with Kim. I was not. Kim was also there while I watched them. <laughs> it's kind of what it comes down to. Uh, before we get into it, though, it is Cold-Blooded Killers Month here at Nightmare on Film Street, both in the podcast and at nofspodcast.com. So if you like your fill of grimy 80s killers... Sometimes some snow. Sometimes some snow, of course, like Santa, biggest killer of all. Yeah, what I've been seeing. <laughs> we have an entire episode dedicated to diabetes. It's the silent killer that's sweeping the nation, and we gotta do something about it. Cold-blooded. Legit, though, between Kim and I... All of our parents have diabetes. Oh my god! Right? I gotta stop eating candy. You do. I have a sweet tooth. You have a. You were literally like skittles yesterday. <laughs> All right. It was kind of scary. All right. Well, we know it's keeping me unhealthy at the very least. <laughs> Kim, what's keeping you creepy this week? Some movies coming out this weekend. We've got 
In Fabric, the super cool haunted dress movie that we finally watched back at Sleepy Hollow Film Festival that is hitting, is it select theaters in VOD? Yep. Uh, Peter Strickland, it's, it's, I can't talk about it too much other than the fact that it is like a visual feast. There's lots of red. Everybody loves red. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And there's a haunted dress. What more could you ask for? Super weird movie. Definitely for you David Lynch fans out there, I would think. Uh, But also uh, another movie from Spectre Vision, the people that brought you Mandy and the upcoming Colorado Space have... Adam Egypt Mortimer's Daniel Isn't Real, also hitting select theaters. Probably my fav- one of my favorite posters of 2019. It's incredible. Yeah. It's a poster that I loved before the movie, and then now looking at it after having seen the movie, holy shit. Pretty good. You guys are going to like this movie a lot. It's nuts. It's weird. It's got some really gross shit, but it's also just like maybe probably the best psychological horror of the year. Hmm? Maybe. Hmm? You see for yourselves this weekend. Let me know what you thought. Uh, and Knives Out came out last weekend, so... Yeah, happy you, Thanksgiving. Yeah, those are you who spent your Thanksgivings with um, your new film family. Oh, uh, man, what, what was... Jamie Lee Curtis, Tony Collette, everybody else. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> yeah, but what was, what was it like going from, like, maybe a hostile dinner at your own family's house to seeing a movie in the theater about a hostile dinner that ends in murder at somebody else's house? <laughs> I really liked it. We saw it at Fantastic Fest. I thought yeah, it was way funnier than I thought it was going to be. Unfortunately, like, I need to see it again. Um, Let's I'll, go. We'll probably see it before the before it finishes its theater run because I honestly, um, apart from remembering the ending, I don't really remember a whole lot about it. I remember liking it. Yeah. But not like, I don't, it seems like everybody really loved it. So, like, that's great. I hope I like it that much on second watch. It's a really cool murder mystery. I mean, like, it's not too often that we have, like, Agatha Christie-type murder mysteries anymore. And I think you can you could agree, because last night, or, an, I don't know. An, a, it was Sunday, John. Sunday night. You were dying for one, and we couldn't find one. You wanted a modern one, specifically. Basically, you wanted a movie to watch after watching Knives Out. Now... If you were to broaden your perspective a little bit and include older I, movies. I just wanted a BBC one. That's I, what I wanted. Totally. <laughs> I just wanted a British one. I guess the, the, the TLDR version of this question is, what movies would you recommend to people after having seen Knives Out if they would like another a little more murder mystery in their lives? Um, Clue. Okay. You've heard <laughs> it here on the podcast. Watch Clue again. <laughs> I was going to say Murder on the Orient Express, but like I don't. Recommend that one. There's a lot of versions of that movie. One of them. Yeah, you could watch Death on the Nile. Nah, Clue. Nah, just Clue. Just Clue. Yeah. Pick a different ending. It's a fresh movie. You may have heard about this movie a little bit. Uh, Now, when I look at lists of like, oh, 10 movies to watch after seeing Knives Out, I'm seeing this movie on that list. Up up until earlier this year, completely unheard of uh, for me. I'd never heard of it. Sounded strange. Probably the best murder mystery I've seen in a very long time. The Last of Sheila takes place mostly on a boat. You made us watch that like two years ago. Was it two years ago? Yeah. I mean, it's always impressive when the song of the summer lasts more than one summer. <laughs> you know. Uh, and here we are. It's California girls. <laughs> <laughs> really good. They're uh, undeniable. <laughs> Last of Sheila is still on top. Nice. Uh, Ian McShane's in it. Super great. In the 70s, Ian McShane. Written by Anthony Perkins, who, of course, you know from Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, based on actual murder mysteries that they would throw for their friends. Anyway, it's a really cool movie, really strange. Very good Hollywood movie, too, if you like Hollywood movies. Uh, But I would highly recommend it. Other movies that are coming out, if you don't feel like going to the theater, uh, you can check out a... I mean, 
I know nothing about it. There's a true crime documentary coming to Netflix about Henry Lee Lucas called The Confession Killer, because he... I think we talk about it a little bit in this podcast. Conf- we do. Yeah. Because conf- we're, believe it or not, we're talking about the fictionalized version of Henry Lee Lucas called Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it could not have come in a better time. We did not plan this. We didn't. Nope. Not at all. But uh, I get the impression it's going to be very similar to the Ted Bundy documentary that came out earlier this year, mostly based on tapes. Uh, but yeah, Henry Lee Lucas, real piece of work. But, you know, c- confessed to. I don't know, 300 murders or something stupid like that. Just probably all fake, mostly fake. But who knows? Who knows? Yeah, <laughs> really don't know. I'm really pumped for that documentary. Yeah, it might be good. Yeah. When does that come out? December 6th, this week. And dope. Yeah. We'll have a review on the site also. So if uh, you're not sure if it's worth your time, you can head over to nofspodcast.com. Check it out. Cool. Uh, before we send you to the meat of the episode, just a reminder that we are doing Krampus cards again this year. If you are a patron of Nightmare on Film Street, you're going to get a Christmas card from John and I. Hell we yeah. do it every year uh, just to thank those of you who support us. And 2019 was a big year for us in terms of like getting on the road and traveling and stuff. So we wanted to make a special card for you guys. If um, you want to get a Krampus card and you are not yet a patron, we are actually still open. There's still time to send them out. So we made our cutoff December 12th. 12th. Yeah. So as long as you pledge by the 12th, you're going to get a Krampus card. I, I th- Any later than that, though, I don't think we'd be able to get them out in time for Christmas. So. Yeah. Definitely not before Krampus shows up. Now, we also haven't field tested it, but I do think that if Krampus comes to steal your kids and you show him the card, it's like a get-out-of-Krampus-free card, I yeah. think. I wouldn't want to test it out, but I mean, if you ever find your salvation, like, he might be flattered. Yeah, I mean, like, maybe cover all your bases and take a little bit of your firstborn's blood to smear across the door, just to be safe. <laughs> but you can head to patreon.com slash Street to check out our Patreon page and all of our rewards and perks and all that stuff. Right after that cutoff next week, actually, Friday the 13th, we will be hosting a one of our monthly... Uh, live streams of the Friday the 13th game. Oh, yeah, because December has a Friday the 13th in it. Hell, yeah, it does. And, you know, if you're worried, you're like, hey, I already got plans. I'm going to be watching Joe Bob. We are, too. Don't worry. We are only holding you until from 7 to 8.59 because we need just enough time to switch over. See Ernie wearing his little cap. Oh, Ernie. Yeah, and then uh, probably watch Black Christmas, I would assume. Yeah, probably. Or a bunch of Silent Night, Deadly Nights. What do you think it's going to be? I don't know. Oh, it's going to be Deadly Games, that new movie that they just added. Oh, yeah. shit. That's what I'm hoping for. I haven't watched it yet, so like this will be perfect because I haven't had time, and uh, I've already designated that as my shutter time, so... Okay, that's enough fun and games. Let's talk about two movies that are huge downers because they are just dealing with some of the worst people to walk this earth, just some real cold-blooded killers. Let's start off by talking probably about the most controversial of these two movies. At least based on who's sitting in this room. <laughs> Let's talk about 1980s. Somebody up? Uh, somebody over there! I see somebody over Maniac 
Maniac is a repulsive story of a berserk killer in New York. This is an extremely brutal film that thoroughly grossed me out, and what sent me out of the theater so early was the scene where we see a head hit by a shotgun blast and it explodes in slow motion. That came after a couple of throat slashings and a vicious strangulation. Maniac is making its slimy way into theaters all around the country, so be on the lookout for it and avoid it. You know, sometimes that's a very uh, valid reaction to just walk out on a film like that, even if you're a movie critic, because as a civilized person, there's no point in sitting there and watching yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah, there was no point at which the film was going to redeem itself after that. It was a real gross-out show. From 1980, William Lustig's Maniac is currently sitting at a 39% on Rotten Tomatoes, 6.5 out of 10 on IMDb, 22% on Metacritic, and 3.4 out of 5 on Letterboxd. I didn't see all of the ratings for the newer, updated Maniac with Elijah Wood, but uh, it also doesn't have a great Metacritic score. That's the only other place I saw it was like 44%. Oh, no, no, and I think it has like a 22 on on Rotten Tomatoes. Anyway, people on Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic did not like this movie. Oh, one other thing here. It says that um, currently holds the Guinness World Book of Record for the sweatiest close-up. <laughs> That's all. That's obviously not true, but is also true. Yeah. So uh, John's been wanting to talk about these movies on the podcast forever. Hell yeah! And uh, I've I've put us off for a real long time. Um, Would you like to explain why? Just because they're <laughs> uh, they're not enjoyable movies. <laughs> so um, apologies if you had to sit through these for the first time and you had no idea what you're getting into, and then you're like, oh fuck, these are dark. Um, it's all John's fault. He made us do this, and I couldn't hold off any longer. It's and you're welcome, John, everybody. You have the floor. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! Do you like? Do you not like? Uh, okay, I'm not gonna direct this at you. I'm sorry. No, go I ahead. have a <laughs> appreciation for like those gritty, grimy, sleazy New York, Chicago movies of the early '80s. You just wanted to watch Taxi Driver. Which we did before we did these movies. And then you just doubled down. I, that's not, you're, you're really drawing a line between some things that have happened in the last, like, few weeks and the last year and a half of me trying to watch this. Uh, I think it was sparked by the 4K restoration that Blue Underground was putting out last year and, uh, and I just have held off watching it since then and, and I'm so happy to finally be here. I have been wanting to watch Maniacs for so long! I think both of these movies, but Maniac especially, is one of those great grindhouse movies of the early 80s that shows you a New York that just doesn't exist. And, you know, as much as, you know, it's fun to be like, oh, I'd love to see that place. It looks horrible. It does not look like the kind of place you'd want to grow up or go to the movies. But um, but I like watching it from the comfort of my own home. Okay. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> and I also just think it's a great little movie that puts you in the mind of a madman. Yeah. Uh, so I had seen this movie once previous. Yes. And I didn't really remember a whole lot about it apart from Tom Savini's scene. <laughs> so, but I, I did remember, like, I, I did, uh, like... I don't know if I necessarily visually remembered, like, his mannequin thing. Oh, yeah. But I just knew he had a mannequin thing. Yeah. And to be fair, like, my brain did a pretty good job of remembering just enough of that movie that I, I still have all of it. Like, I still, like, <laughs> like Tom Savini's death and the mannequin yet. thing. Like, not even a visual of the mannequin thing. Like, oh, I get maniac. Like, oh, I That's got all it. you just had a bullet point that said <laughs> mannequins in your brain. Mannequin thing, Tom Savini squish. 
Dom Savini squish. Oh, yeah. Uh, it is fucking uncomfortable to watch this movie. And I, I, if you're into feeling uncomfortable and like squidgy in your seat, this is definitely the movie for you. But for the majority of the movie going public, film is supposed to be like escapism. And this movie is like escaping into like a rat's den. Yeah. And getting trapped there. So I understand <laughs> the Rotten Tomatoes writing because wow. this movie is very uncomfortable. And huh. there's a lot I appreciate about this movie. It's got some really interesting ideas and it presents some really um, unique perspectives, particularly that of a psychopath. Um, and also the special effects are awesome. But I can't say that I like watching it. Okay. Does that make sense? Like, I, that, no, I respect that totally the movie, sense. but my rating at the end is going to be how much I like it, and it's going to be very low, and you're going to be upset. I'm not going to be upset. You are going to be upset. I'm going to be surprised. I'm warning you now. <laughs> I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to be hurt. I'm telling I'm you now. I'm going to feel let down. I'm not going to be mad. <laughs> wow. Has there been any other movie we've talked about on the podcast where you've had to, like, warn hold, like, you? Just a heads up. I don't think so. I don't know. I feel like we should do it now and then roll backward through the movie. No. No, let's, let's talk about the let's, movie let's because it's format. not going to taint how I talk about the movie because as Good. I said, I, I, there's a lot I respect about the movie, but I don't like watching it. <laughs> I'm, okay, that's fine. I'm glad to hear that. It, uh, I, I kind of want to narrow in on what it is about the movie that you have a hard time watching. Is it just the things that Frank the Maniac does? Is it how it's filmed? Like, is it just because it has that... Like super gritty, low budget. Maybe you're kind of there for it. Moments like Last Honestly, House on the Left. What? Kinda. Yeah. What I don't like about this movie is also kind of what I give it credit for. Okay. In that it is, it's not glamorizing at all to what a serial killer's mentality and lifestyle would be like. He's very sweaty. He's <laughs> he's gross. Like yeah. and when he's murdering people and you have to see like his face like bearing down on them, like that gives me like a, a physical response. Like I don't yeah. like that. Particularly the see uh, the sequence where he attacks the nurse. There's something so like helpless about it and like realistic i guess and watching somebody being hunted and then them being powerless and also like me being a powerless viewer and also like a witness getting entertainment out of it like i just really don't like being put in that situation to the film's credit does that make sense that, that, that makes total sense um what of those things bothers you the most the the so so what i'm breaking down there is like we've got some pov shots basically from the victim's perspective like when we're seeing when we're seeing uh, Joe Spinell's like sweaty, greasy face, it's we're supposed to be looking up at him as he's strangling us. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, like there is a woman who is trying to get away in a subway late at night. And she has good um, like spidey sense. She has a good like she's smart and I want her to 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 survive. But she is a woman who's taking the subway at night from work in a busy city and she has a good sense for when things are wrong because there's nothing that tips her off to this guy until he's actually murdering her you know what i mean yeah she's just running from the vibe she gets from him but you still respect that how it's put together and how it's presented 
And I'm wondering if it's if it's that. It's like you you do like that scene, but you don't like that. I, 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 that's what I'm trying to break into because, like, you're saying about getting enjoyment of, out of it as a viewer. Like, what is it about that? Well, just like the the, the act of viewership, like the the voyeurism of it. Okay. I feel it makes me feel dirty as a horror fan. Okay. Does that make sense? Oh, that totally makes sense. Because it's it's um gratuitous in its grittiness. Yeah. Okay. And like, do you think if this was flashier, you'd have no problem with it? If we played the maniac character more for yucks, I think it would be it would soften where he's stalking and attacking women, and it's very very like dry and dirty. So like none of the none of his character traits are actually played for yucks like any of the like ha 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 moments are kind of on us like the only sort of silly moment is when he's um talking to one of the mannequins i think it's actually the nurse and he's brushing out her hair and her hair's all bloody and he's just like oh you're you got blood in your hair and like you kind of laugh as like a horror fan because i mean it's it's a little silly visually it's got like this naughty scalp of hair i'm rolling my eyes saying that but it's like covered in blood and her outfit's bloody and it's just a silly vignette but when you think about it on face value like it's fucking twisted oh yeah it's crazy twisted it's his, it's funny his because his apartment it's so, would smell so bad <laughs> it would be fucking disgusting he basically just lives in a dumpster pile and there's so much stuff everywhere like rotting too. scalps oh and him stapling them on their head, like, it's a little silly, but there's there's nothing else silly. There's nothing, well, it's not actually silly. No, it's not silly. It's a very humorless movie, but for how crazy it is. Like, it is so macabre. It, it, it's in the same way, you would laugh at this movie the same way you laugh at scenes in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is, in a lot of ways, humorless. But it's how, uh, like, regular things are happening in a very irregular way. Like, we are watching his morning routine, and a morning routine for everybody is just normal, and it's normal for him. And he doesn't approach things as though he's doing them in a uncommon way. It's very secondhand to him. Yeah, there's a sense of, like, routine. Yeah, Yeah, routine. I think it's Do you remember the the moment where I jumped? I I do. It was the nurse. So I was going to bring that up. You you definitely had a very uh, uncomfortable time watching... The, no, 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 sorry, sorry. It was, so you had a very uncomfortable time watching the nurse in the subway, especially where she's hiding. And I think part of it was just, like, those those uncontrollable re, uh, responses that she was, like, she was, like, Oh, was groaning. she was making little noises? Yeah, and it's just, like, you can see that she's fighting it. And it's, like, why would you make that sound? And it's just, like, she doesn't want to make that sound, man. But, like, it's it's just coming out because she's absolutely terrified. And then, like, yeah, there's, there's a moment where she thinks she's gotten away and everything's cool and he comes up behind her. But when he attacks uh, Rita, the model, that one got, like, a genuine jump out of you. I don't even remember because I was, like, so... I was <laughs> I was drinking Pepsi and I jumped so much I spilled the Pepsi all over myself. Yeah. I have never done that in a movie. And like, it's not like it's built my drink on myself. It, it wasn't a moment like a, like a James Wan built scare. You didn't have to like lock into it and really get into it. It was just like a gritty. He's got a knife pressed against her skin. We you know, we see shots between their eyes like he's really into it, she's really scared and then he stabs her like there was it was very sort of routine at this point in the movie, but just I don't know, like maybe the real to life aspect of it just like really, really gotcha. Yeah. It I... was it was an experience to watch this movie with you because it really got under your skin. 
You know, um, I think maybe now is is a good time to bring up uh, how much Gene Siskel hated this movie. Uh, we don't have a rating from Roger Ebert for it. There's no rating on the website. Um, and in the Siskel and Ebert at the movies television show, they don't really talk about it too much, other than that Gene Siskel really goes to town on explaining how horrible this movie is and how vile it is. And uh, he also says that he walked out of the movie after Tom Savini got his head blown off. And he says there's no way that anything ir- that anything redeemable is going to happen in the movie and there's no good message and I didn't want to waste my time watching it. Mm-hmm. Which is, whatever. I mean, I've heard him talk about that kind of stuff before. He also went on this big, long campaign because a Chicago theater was they playing clips from the movie outside of the theater in broad daylight for anybody to look at so like they were playing murder set pieces outside um that's a little (laughs) (laughs) that's that's maybe a little much i don't know that i necessarily do that um the only thing that bugged me about uh roger ebert was um coming to his defense by saying that like even as critics where it's our job to watch these movies there's no reason for a civilized person to have to sit through that and it's like, what do you maybe get to the end of the fucking movie? Like, there's, there's yeah, but John, more to sometimes this. like for some people this isn't cinema. So like for some people this is just gratuitous violence, okay. and you you can kind of see where they're coming from because some people don't want to be like brought to the brink of entertainment. Yeah, agreed. Um... I think this this is this movie could also be called Maniac, a portrait of a serial killer. You know, the fact that we don't have a, a name in front, like it, it could be called Frank, a portrait of a serial killer. Mm-hmm. I think it is a really interesting movie because we we follow Frank in Frank's life. Frank is a horrible person. It's I'm not, not even. S- it's just like three weeks with Frank. That, okay, I, I I know. See, the, it is a cycle of Frank. Um, because Frank... It's like, oh no, Frank's gone manic again. That's what we're watching. I think this happens every year. That's what I'm saying. Like, first off, like you could make an argument that the first person that he kills at the beginning of the movie is the first person he has killed before. But he seems way too good at it and way too prepared. Didn't he already have a mannequin in his bed? Well, I think it might have been that mannequin from the beginning of the movie. Like, uh, I think we don't necessarily see him build that first mannequin, yeah. right? He just has the mannequin, and then he goes out and he kills again, and then we see him put the scalp on. Um... But he talks to all of these mannequins as though they are a specific person. And even when he's killing the his second victim, the the prostitute is going to take him around the world. No, the ultimate. She's going to give him the ultimate. <laughs> um, like we are seeing flashes of another woman, so we know that he is like, visualizing. Yeah, like we're like the, the movie. I mean, we can all guess it's mother. But <laughs> we, I think we can all guess it's mother now. But I think in 1980, that was a pretty interesting angle. Like, yeah, we've got Psycho and stuff, but, like, the analysis of serial killers was very... It was a burgeoning field at that time. Yeah, well, and plus the 80s... 70s and 80s, I think, were the height of the American serial killer. Yeah. Because it was... 119 serial killers in the 70s. Well... We started editing an article recently. Yeah, like, it was free love. Young people were hitchhiking on highways, like, truck drivers and... People who use truck driving as an outlet had access and law enforcement didn't communicate between states. Like it was, it was a time to be able to get away with that kind of stuff. And I mean, thankfully now we have like DNA and fingerprinting and we have some things that, that slow it down a little bit, (laughs) but it's crazy when you think of the, like, there's no way that we have less people who have the potential to become serial killers it's just harder for them to be serial killers so they're not yeah 
don't you wonder if if there are like people that you've met or known in your life that like you're like oh yeah that person's crazy but like what if they really actually could have been in another decade oh yeah that's the nutters part about it and i think maybe just a bunch of people that are in jail for a single murder maybe are probably Mm. like those people oh true like they got caught yeah after one yeah or yeah like people who do like home invasions and stuff and and just never had the potential to like ramp up to that because like i know um one of our biggest serial killers in canada started out as like a home invasion rapist and worked his way up to murder and like now thanks to dna and um everybody having like cameras in their front stoops yeah we're able to catch those people before they evolve into murderers i I think that's one way to describe it yeah i mean if we're in the silence of the lambs universe that's definitely the right word for it yeah (laughs) but maniac for me like gives it's it's an in i'm trying to use the right words because i don't want to make it sound like i'm too much of a voyeur in this scenario but yeah like it's it's a movie so like i know it's not real it's fine and yes unfortunately very unfortunately these are real to life people um, so it is speaking to a darkness that exists in our real world. But um, to see his manic cycle is is really interesting because he is a very specific type of killer. And he has very specific rituals and how he does things. And it's so weird and removed from a world I know that uh, it's it's just a really interesting character study. Yeah, you almost feel... Every opportunity we get to go into his little apartment or his bachelor pad or whatever we're calling it, um, you almost feel like you get to be a detective and you're like scouring his walls yes, yeah. and trying to figure out why things are the way they are. Like, I'm not looking at it as like, oh, they, they dressed his set like this. Like, there was a reason why he scratched the breasts and the... Yes, like yeah. Like the pubic area off of... that nudie photo. There's a reason why, I swear to God, there are bubbles on his dresser. But he's got, <laughs> he eats like Cracker Jacks. He and eats like... Cracker Jacks while he's packing up his his guitar case or violin case filled with like a machete and a shotgun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like he, there is a childlike aspect to him that he is really wallowing in. So like we know, as we as we go through the movie, we learn more and more about his backstory through the conversations that he has with mannequins. More than it, more than anything else, like yeah. there, there is a mumblecore version of this movie that exists just inside that apartment where we never see the killer. Him actually murdering, yeah, and we, it's just in. Yeah, we we see a guy doing his morning routine and leaving with weapons, and, and coming every, back like, there's with a, a new hairstyle. Yeah, yeah, like he comes back with a mannequin and a scalp, and he talks to it, and that's how we learn about the mother that left him. Like it, it does not sound like she was necessarily a great mother. By by all accounts, she was. Um, but I mean, we, we really don't know anything. Like we, we don't know if it's true. Yeah, we, we we definitely don't know if it's true. We don't know to what extent any of it's... Like, we don't know her story at all. We just know that she was either bringing a lot of men back home for work or just uh, in her personal life, and he was exposed to it. And that at one point when she left, which was always his biggest fear, that his mother was never home, she never came back. She died in a car accident. Um, at least that's what he tells Anna the photographer that he meets in the strangest and second just half like, of this movie. She has real bad Spidey sense. <laughs> she, she does. Just like in, like, he's just like, oh yeah, you took my picture in the park and then you're just like, oh, come in. You're my best friend now. Yeah, there's, and it's there's like, no question about it. what are you doing? But here's the... Just because he brushed his hair, he still <laughs> looks like a creep. He is very much a creep because 
I don't know how he got her address. Like, why is that not the first question she asked? Like, I saw you in the park. You took my photo. I'm at your door now. That's a little nuts. That's a little crazy. But she's totally fine with it. And uh, he's like, would you like to go out sometime? She's like, I'll be ready in 10. <laughs> like, they go out to dinner right away. And the the, the craziest thing about about that whole scenario is that he is kind of a normal person at yeah. dinner. And he's like fine like a, a lot of times you think of these these serial killers as being like incel guys and being taking out their anger on women because they can't interact with them socially and they can't get love they can't get a partner because they're they're not able to treat them like human beings yeah. and he's actually kind of flirty and suave yeah and he's he, really not they're that eating bad. cheesecake and it's just like man you could have a normal life like that's that is the surefire sign with a 10 a 10 <laughs> she's incredible but like that is the surefire sign that they had a great dinner because i i personally don't even stay for dessert in my in my own like outings with well, you and they're, they're talking about being like they're talking about plans and stuff yeah so, like, he's already coffee. got a second date with her before fucking cakes even done. she invites him to his house while she's working to just like observe a photo shoot her house what did i say his house my mistake he is not having anybody over to his can you imagine oh you know like i love thinking about this movie from the perspective of somebody else that lives in that building that she says hello to him as he's coming home with a garbage bag filled with i don't know a christmas tree i guess (laughs) do you think he steals those mannequins or do you think he buys the mannequin i don't know because there are scenes where he's sort of like window shopping for them yeah like i think he i don't know I think if he broke into a place and stole a mannequin, we'd probably see it. Somehow he acquires a mannequin. And so, like, we, I'm barreling through this movie. Like, we didn't even really talk about Tom Savini's head explosion. I do want to talk about it. Yeah. Let's just take a break here and talk about Tom Savini's head explosion. Well, and there's a reason why I remember that scene. One, because it is very jarring and it's very visceral. Like, they mm, yeah. blow up a fucking melon uh, <laughs> of guts. <sighs> Is and I and this is probably true to not just Siskel, but a lot of people who turned off the movie probably turned it off at this point because it is made very evident in in this sequence, like this Lovers Lane sequence, that this film will have no redemption. Okay. None of these characters that we root for will have redemption. They will all die crying at the end at the barrel of a gun and and maybe that's why the slasher film has evolved to have that final girl Mm. because there is always like a thread of redemption and maybe redemption's not the right word catharsis yeah like we need to have something to hang on to like hope and just like a sense of good in the world and that everything will work out okay because i think staring down the black tunnel of like what happens to people when they actually face these kinds of maniacs in the real world is like not somewhere our psyche can willingly go i hear you and like i i would definitely say that i appreciate nihilistic filmmaking a little more than you do but i 
as like I like the idea of it. And I, <laughs> I like I like the idea I'm of okay, nihilism. I'm okay just, with films like this existing. Yeah. But am I going to put this on my DVD shelf and revisit it every year? Like I probably don't need to watch this movie ever again. I am buying it on Blu-ray. Oh. Like I am letting you know right now that at some point I'm buying. That 4K restoration. And honestly, um, I, I think I made up that decision when, like, after Tom Savini was shot, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. It's when the girlfriend gets shot in the face. Yeah, that one's rough. And I, I like, you'd think I'd be desensitized by now to, like, people being murdered in, in movies, but this film is really well-crafted around making you feel the the like the finiteness of their final scenes with him yeah the movie makes you feel helpless like, oh and when he when he gets that model and like ugh. so then he the holds th- her captive like it just it's, ugh. yeah no it's it's tough it's real tough but um it's it, it's interesting you think about it in her perspective like this this creep she knows him yeah well she she's met him she knows of him yeah and he's got her tied up and he's spewing obviously his like psychological break babble at her yeah and all she can do is just try to figure out like okay what is this guy's tick and and what possibly could i do to get out of it is there any opportunity is there any crack i can yeah i can exploit and there's no time for her to even get a a bearing on the situation it's it's interesting you highlighting all of that especially after talking about not having a final girl and how in a horror movie we have a final girl that gives us somebody to root for and somebody to hold on to, essentially. Um, what's great about this movie is either that it has an incredible ability to give us that same feeling to everybody else we see. Like, Frank is such a horrible person. It's that because anytime... none of them transgress. That's true. Nobody did anything wrong. Nobody did anything wrong. You're right. And you feel for them. You are with them in that moment. And there is such empathy for that person on screen. But you don't... There is no happy ending. Um, So either it's to the film's credit that it's able to get such a connection between you and that character you've only just seen. uh, Either because Frank is so bad or because they're so helpless. Or that just says something about us as people. Like, we we know how bad Frank is, so the moment we see anybody else near him, we are scared for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's effective in doing it. And before we move away from it too much, because obviously we're talking just about, like, bigger motifs uh, than the actual plot of the movie. Uh, Tom Savini's head explosion. Like, oh boy, like, top three head explosions of all time, right? Like, oh, it's so great. Is it a compliment to be like, yeah, that looked real? Like, sure, it's a compliment because it's fake. It's not. The goal is to make it look as real as possible. I guess while still being enjoyable. So that's okay. Sure, <laughs> sure. We won't give it the number one spot. No, now. it was. It was very jarring. Yeah. Even knowing it was coming, and even being like seeing that car pull up, in my memory being like, oh, this is that scene. Like, you know, the worst part about that whole scene though is that uh, Tom Savini never sees it coming, and that's not. It's not his. It's not the worst because of that. It's because his girlfriend does. Like, there is a creepy guy an inch away from their window when they're when they're making out in the back seat. And she immediately knows this is a bad scene and we got to get the fuck out of here. And it just, it doesn't happen. Um, 
those eyes peering in at them are the scariest part of that whole scene. Ugh. If you you probably already know this because it's like the one big story that gets circulated uh, regarding Maniac. They uh, did not have a lot of permits to shoot a lot of this movie, and they definitely did not have permits to shoot that head explosion scene. And I think that might even be why it's in slow motion because they only have such a little amount of tape, oh. and they needed to stretch it out a little bit. But it also it, it lingers the horror of that moment anyway. Um, so I think it works, and they were probably always planning to do that. But after they they <laughs> they. After they, they, they shot Tom Savini's fake head and it exploded all over the car, they immediately got out of there. Like, they, like, towed the car away, put it in a garage, locked the doors, and walked away from the garage for, I don't know, months or something. And when they opened it back up, because Tom Savini's fake head had been stuffed with, like, shrimp and whatnot, like, it's a lot of food particles, and it had just been sitting in a hot car for a long time, the car was so disgusting that apparently they just pushed it into the river, which <laughs> does not seem like the right thing to do. <laughs> big kind of littering <laughs> but here's the thing you've got a car and it's been it's got a shotgun blast through the windshield there's what looks like a person in the front seat there is gross moldy disgusting awful smelling stuff all over the car how do you explain to somebody that it's not a real dead body <laughs> like you can't just bring it to a junkyard i guess and be like hey squash this for me there's nothing illegal happening here <laughs> we're filmmakers yeah yeah and like i don't think you were allowed to use um firearms in filmmaking unless you had like the warner brothers permit you know like it was new york was not having it at that time so it was all kinds of illegal mm. So into the river it went. <laughs> I'm still saying it's not a good idea. I'm still thinking that's even worse though, because imagine I think if, it is worse. Imagine if they like found that car and they pull it out yeah, and it just like surely they did, right? Somebody uh, had to have, and then the cops came and like, okay, nothing to see here, folks. Just a dumb mannequin. Oh well. So do you not find so the ending of this movie I find so brilliant. I think it's it's so great. Um and like at one point, he takes uh, Anna, who is kind of becoming his, like, weird girlfriend, although she really shouldn't be. He takes her on a drive. They're going, they're going out to dinner, but he's like, hey, do you mind if we stop at the graveyard so I can visit my mother first? <laughs> and she's like, of course. That's not strange. I'll even come with you and to And then it's dark and foggy. Foggy bog, yeah. <laughs> but there we see her tombstone, and we see that she had died in December. It is currently December because there are Christmas decorations. It's cold. Everybody's wearing thicker jackets. So... This is it. Like, this is a cycle. He is always leading up to that night. I think he is so friendly with Anna because he needs to get close to her to get her to go to the cemetery. I think the goal was always to kill her at the cemetery at his mother's grave. You think so? I thought he just cracked. I don't know. Because he was... So, there's a scene when he's not with Anna, but it's after he's met her. And he's, like, mannequin shopping. And he looks at a bride mannequin. I think he Mm. actually wants... Like, maybe not necessarily a girlfriend, but a relationship with a girl that he can then turn her into a bride mannequin, and then he'll have, like, a wife. Well, the bride mannequin thing is kind of, I think you're right. I think I, th- I think he's got a lot of problems with his mom. <laughs> like, I think, <laughs> I think he wants to kill her. I think he wants to live with her. I think he wants to marry her. And it's definitely a till death do us part and here for eternity kind of thing. Because he especially says to all the mannequins, now you can never leave me. You'll always be here. And I think to a guy who looks at women like that, that's what a bride would be, you know? Yeah. So there, there's, a, there's a lot definitely rolled into that. I think just being at that, that tombstone and seeing that his mother died in December tells me that this is just a cycle that he goes through leading up to 
his mother's death. Yeah, I think, I think, I think you're think very he's right. A quote unquote normal person uh, throughout most of the year. Uh, he is still a maniac, but his killings, I, I think, don't begin until Thanksgiving time. Also, I think it's hysterical when he is chasing Anna through the cemetery and we are running through like the same 10 feet of graveyard over and over and over <laughs> again. It's like an old Hanna-Barbera cartoon in the back rooms. The backgrounds just keep getting looped around and around. <laughs> it's so great, but it looks so good. And that fucking moment where like she has hit him with a shovel oh. and he's wounded and you and now you know she's gotten away and the jig is up and his days are numbered and his fucking mother's corpse comes out of the ground and pulls her pulls him toward her. I think that is a great visual moment because this is the end of him. Like letting her run away and not being able to kill her, you know, thank God. Uh is is the end of his story. There is no way he's getting away with it, and he will be dead soon, if not by his own hand, then by the criminal justice system. And at that moment, it's like the closest he's ever been to his mother. And just for him, for her to, to in in the sense that they're both going to be dead, is kind of what I mean. Mm-hmm. But I just, I love the idea of her pulling him into the grave. I think it's such a great visual cue. Um, and uh, when he goes back to his apartment, I'm so, I'm so, do you not find the end of this movie, like, not redemptive, but I like, think it's the it's the find, most like, like it? it's the most cathartic a movie of this nature could be. Yeah, the fact that he is quote unquote murdered by his sick killery fetish of these mannequins coming to life and like killing him. Like, oh, it's so great! They fucking rip him apart, and they look great. Like all of the all of the actresses who were these women that he murdered embody the mannequin like mannerisms like they have really yeah. like elongated hands and their their elbows move strangely and they do a really great job of still like embodying mannequins even though you know that all the actresses are in the room and there's no mannequins left yeah, like, yeah, yeah. it um it's a really rewarding scene even though you know it's like he's taken the coward's way out and killed himself unless we're something paranormal happens but the fact that he is visualizing, like, his own failure. Yeah, like, he realized he's surrounded by these trophies most of the time. But now he realizes they are definitely just, like, all dark parts of his nature. And, like, he's surrounded by all the horrible things he's done. And it's finally come to roost. Well, and also, like, in his sick, twisted mind, he has failed them. Like, Good point. They can't be together forever, and it's his fault. That's a really good point. So they're, like, suffocating him or punishing him. Yeah. There, I, I didn't notice it, but there is a, a great little touch where the uh, the prostitute that he kills at the beginning, uh, who is modeling for him in the in the room before he before he starts strangling her, is like she's asking him like you like it like this, like this, like this, and that's she keeps saying that when while she's, she's yeah. killing him. Oh, what a great touch! I'm so glad you pointed that out because I did not hear it. We, you know, we obviously we have a moment where like the cops come and they find him, and he's rather than being torn apart, he just has like one little little knife jammed into his belly and they 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 back out of the room and close the door case closed and just, just enough time for his eyes to open dun 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 maniac 2 you always leave room for a sequel yeah i don't know john this movie's just too dark for me oh, i think yeah no you know i completely understand we watched this with a friend like hi will i know you're listening yeah hi will uh it was hard to watch in a group. It was hard to watch with other people watching me and my, me spilling pop all over myself. Yeah. I was really uncomfortable. Now, last question. Was this movie super uncomfortable and hard to watch 
because you're a woman? Like, is like, like, how am I, am I phrasing that correctly? Maybe because I find myself, like, thinking about, okay, if I was alone, like, especially the subway sequence, I think it bothered me more because I've been in vulnerable situations where you think to yourself, like, okay, what would I do if I, if I, if somebody was following me? Yeah. Or what would I do if my bus didn't arrive on time? Or, like, there's... And she does all the things that you would do. Well, and also, too, like, I can't really relate now to a time before cell phones. Mm. And that's kind of scary. Cause I think like being a working woman in a busy city and not having access to a cell phone, like you can't just check in, even just checking in with somebody so that they know that like, okay, I'm leaving now. Or like, Oh, the subway was late. Like, you know what I mean? You would yeah, just yeah. arrive home an hour later and be like, Oh, the subway was delayed. But nowadays, if somebody's, delayed 15 minutes and they don't text you first like something is wrong yeah so i maybe that's something that that everybody can relate to but i don't know i think as a woman yeah you have to we're a lot more aware of our surroundings when we're alone and all of these women are like independent professional women like one's a model she lives on her own there's a photographer she's a professional there's a nurse who's who's commuting like it's these are makes me not happy <laughs> yeah, and like it's it's also just people working on the street, people sleeping on the beach, people that are just looking for a quiet place to spend some time together. Like it's there's no real type that he goes for. It could be anybody. Yeah, and I think the fact that he still kills couples and and just couples that are disarmed makes when he attacks women on their own even worse because you know that even if you were with somebody it wouldn't it wouldn't him. slow him. well yeah it wouldn't stop him from targeting you yeah like what he's a maniac yeah spooky yep so uh what's your what's your uh what's your rating um i'm going to give this movie a one and a half out of 4 okay that's just like personal preference this movie is really good it's got some really great depictions of a serial killer and the way he operates your and face right now it's so you're just like i don't want to say these things but i gotta give it credit yeah no like i i i'm glad i watched the movie and there's there's a lot that's really great about this movie but yeah like this is not the, the type of movie that i would put on that's totally fine and i feel bad that we made so many people watch it because i know that there's probably just as many people out there that they're like, yeah, this is not my kind of horror movie. Well, I mean, that, that's great, though. But hopefully some people who, who like nihilistic stuff like you discover it. and Sure, yeah. I mean, like, I'm happier that you have that opinion because, uh, you know, even if we both love this movie and we come on here and we say how great it is, somebody who watched it based on a recommendation will not agree. And I'm glad that you have, I'm glad that they have you in their corner. Like, I respect it, but I do not like it. That's totally <laughs> fine. You don't have to. I'm, um, I'm, I'm happy that you, you watched it with me, um, because I really like it. And I'm sorry that it's not your bag. You know, like I, the, the thing I love about you and about the horror community at large is that you're willing to try it out. So you're like, you're like, let's, let's watch it. Let's see what it's like. It's just, you made me movie. try it twice, John. Yeah. <laughs> obviously the last time wasn't for the podcast and now i've exercised my power and i'll probably never be able to get you to watch it again but like whatever i'm gonna watch it i'm gonna continue to watch it i think it's a very good movie i think it's a very hard movie to watch for all the reasons you were you were depicting because it is very gritty 
Um, and like in terms of grindhouse horror movies, at least as as I've experienced them, because there's a billion of them and I've seen a small pocket of them. It's like a four out of four movie for me. But like, I mean, like the acting is not incredible. Like we make a lot of gaps and stretches and and it is very hard to look at. I do love it as a character study of just an awful human being who has mm-hmm. a lot going on. I, I really do love those scenes where he's talking to the mannequins because it is so creepy and unsettling and strange and then and then he becomes like a little baby and you're like am i supposed to feel bad for this guy because these women made him kill them like it's not at all how i'm feeling about it but it's it's how he feels about himself and like there's he's a complex character despite it not being an incredibly complex movie mm-hmm. um so yeah, it's, it's got some stuff against it, but I'm I'm giving it a three and a half out of four um, because I really, really enjoy it. And I enjoy it partly because of how hard it is to watch, I guess. How would you feel, though, if a hundred movies like this existed? I mean, if a hundred movies like, a hundred movies like this do exist. But yeah, if, if this was the, the movie that was coming to the theater every single week, yeah, I wouldn't like that. But the, the, I think part of the reason I do like watching it is because I don't see this everywhere. Yeah. And, al- and also, like, for... I think we got to give William Lustig credit for how he approached making the movie because, like I'm going to talk about in, in Henry for sure, it is, to me, an art film that's inside a horror sandbox. Like, I I love how it's put together. I think some of the shots are just absolutely brilliant. I guess maybe I don't know what the film is, is saying other than be existing for shock value and to be at the precipice of fiction. Okay. Um, sure, and I think th- I think that's what puts it into the exploitation market because people want to come see those kind of things. And if we have a movie that is, it is just like the first act of this movie where we watch him go from from kill to kill to kill to kill with no connective tissue and no exploration as to who he is mm-hmm. uh, in the world at large or in his own apartment in his mind. Then then it's nothing. Then it is just grotesque and exploitative and. Um, it's got no merit, but because we, you know, unfortunately the movie front loads itself with a lot of like heavy violence, it helps create a world for us to explore the twisted mind that can thrive in those horrible conditions. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's a lot of like the reasons why I like this movie are a lot of the same reasons that I like seventies cinema, which this is also kind of lumped into. It's that we have a character that is not necessarily good or bad. He is just there and this is what is happening and we are watching it. Yeah. It's not that we are coming looking for a good time or a bad time. It's that (laughs) we're not here for a good time. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Or a bad time. You picked the greatest time to interrupt (laughs) me too, because I kind of lost what I was going to say. Like. (laughs) Five minutes ago, I had it. And I was you had like, some really yeah. great points, though. Like, you honestly <laughs> just about sold me on this movie. I think, personally, I just need my um, my darkness served with, like, a little levity. Like, I get you. I get you. My recommendation is if this movie is a little bit too dark for you and you do not, if you're like me and you do not necessarily enjoy these things, but you appreciate cinema that goes there, Christmas Evil. Sure. You see, that's the thing. Like, it's I, just served with like a little bit of whimsy or a little bit of yeah, like totally. traditional horror um, fun. There's there's fun to be had there. Yeah. And you still get to explore the psychology of like somebody who's in that like manic Christmas descent. <laughs> yeah. See, it's it's movies like Christmas Evil that surprise me when you say you don't like Maniac. Or that you can't like Maniac. Because mm-hmm. you're like, you fucker, you like The Stranger. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's, it's. 
kind of the same movie to me, but like I, I completely get it. It's all in how it's presented, and this movie is presented in a very hard way to look at. It's But it is a character who we are just following at a specific time, and shock and awe just happens to be part of his everyday life. I don't think the movie is necessarily made specifically for shock and awe. It has shock and awe elements, but they are all because it is part of what makes him... I want to say a human being. It, it makes him the person he is. He is he is not a human being. Good, he's he is, but he's a monster. Um, but yeah, that is that is just the world Frank lives in, and this is Frank's life, and he's a maniac. So, are you ready to talk about uh, Henry? Yeah, I'm ready to have this exact same conversation again. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Henry, portrait of a serial killer. You're telling me you never killed anybody before? I ain't saying that. What do you got in mind, Henry? What do you think? What do you say, Otis? You want to go grab a beer? If you shoot somebody in the head with a 45 every time you kill somebody, it becomes like your fingerprints, see? But if you strangle one and stab another, and when you cut up, when you don't, then police don't know what to do. You guys need me help? Do you need some help? Or can you do it yourself? That's mean you go for a ride on this. It's always the same, and it's always different. Either way. It's sure good to talk to you, Henry. You're not judgmental or anything like that. Open your eyes, Otis. Look at the world. It's either you or them. Did I stutter? Give me the $50 to get out! Don't do that, Otis. She's your sister. Otis, plug it in. From 1986, John McNaughton's Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer is currently sitting at an 87% on Rotten Tomatoes, 7 out of 10 on IMDb, 3.5 out of 4 from Roger Ebert himself, 80% on Metacritic, and 3.6 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Okay, so, surprise, surprise. Yeah, you love this Actually, this is a big surprise. (laughs) Yep. I do actually like this movie. I'm not surprised. It's... Um, it isn't any less dark than Maniac is. Nope. It isn't any less vile in moments than Maniac is, but it's too interesting to be, to be solely abhorred by it. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. And I I will say, you're basically, I watched, I watched a little video, um, uh, from Siskel and Ebert talking about both Maniac and, and Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, and it's, it's interesting how much... Roger Ebert comes to the defense of this movie. Um, I, I honestly think it's because we have Becky, and she Maybe. she's like this emotional goodness for us, and we know that when she's in scenes, like there's somebody that is good and decent there. Like, yeah, I don't know, and I and I think we also are rooting for the humanity of Henry, and we see him hopefully building a relationship with Becky and. I don't know. You want to? Uh, it's a weird position to be in because he he's 
just as cold-blooded as Frank and Maniac, but there's something about him that is just almost like like boyish when he's with Becky. It's funny you say that because uh, I don't, I think Henry's greatest strength uh, is that, maybe not greatest strength, but like greatest secret is that that humanity's never there. I don't think it's ever there. I think there is a presentation of it, but I, I think he I don't know is if he's I, Maybe it's because I look down on Henry's. I don't see him as like a smart or sophisticated serial killer. Well, I don't think he's I don't think he's be. calculated. Like no. I think he's, he's purging something inside him every time he kills somebody. And he could only exist in the age he does because he's not careful. He gets fingerprints everywhere. His DNA is everywhere. And... That was just something that he didn't, as a killer of that era, didn't have to worry about. Yeah, and he also talks about having to constantly be on the move and whatnot. Um, but yeah, like that's he never exists now, and he is like that that uncalculated serial killer yeah. that you hear about constantly. So before we get too much into the movie, because I know we kind of dived into it already, this movie had an interesting like release, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah I don't so. really remember it, so I'm hoping you can download me and everybody else. I mean, like, the TLDR of it is, as far as I remember, is that the MPAA refused to rate it. They didn't even give it an X. Like, it was just the most vile film ever made, was the idea. Mm -hmm. And so it just didn't exist for years. I think something like four years, it had no representation anywhere. It was just, like, a thing ten people had heard about. Uh, And then in 85, I think, it made... A few festivals were brave enough, I guess, to to play it unrated and um critics took it very seriously it was really well received to a degree obviously like i'm sure there were plenty of people talking about how horrible it was but there were plenty of people saying that like this is a great moment in cinema and we need to see it and then it was released to very very select theaters unrated for the longest time i think it went absolutely unrated the mpaa basically just refused to touch it and the interesting thing about Roger Ebert is that that he kind of took that as a stance to sort of combat the MBA, the MPAA by saying that there needs to be something between R and X. And like, how can we have art films like this that are violent but are intended for adults? How can we not have them play places? Like, R rating is a joke, he said, at least in the 80s. And X is essentially like, oh, this movie's going to be played in a nudie theater and no one's ever going to see it. There needs to be something in between those two. And... I don't I I don't necessarily I mean I can understand why they didn't have the same position on Maniac but it is always interesting to hear the two of those guys really come to defend very violent movies that have artistic qualities but at the exact same time in the exact same sentence sometimes really shit on the rest of the horror movies being released in the 80s that were being given an R rating despite the fact that they were just uh you know slasher mm-hmm. slasher movies that had a bunch of naked college kids getting killed yeah, like I and I think that comes down to like violence as escapism or violence as commentary. And um, Henry does a really great job of presenting two different killers in the same world. You and, mean Henry and Otis? Yeah. Okay. And their relationship is an odd one. Like their journey together is a is a weird story, but it almost puts you in kind of a villain role because I don't know if you feel this when you're watching it. I dislike Otis. More than I dislike Henry. Definitely. And Henry is definitely, like, Henry is the is the snake in the grass. Mm-hmm. Otis is just, like, a baboon who learned how to eat from the snake. Like, yeah, he's an oaf. Yeah, he's an idiot. And I think that's one of Henry's strengths, like I was saying earlier. Like, he, you will let him into your house. 
And we see him do that, literally, in, in parts of this movie. Oh, yeah, with the bug spray. Yeah. And we don't even see that conversation. Like, that's nope. so fucking artful. Yeah, I, I think it's like a knee-jerk thing to say, like, oh, is this movie easier to watch for you because you don't actually see the murders? There's plenty of murder on the movie. I would say probably the hardest murder to watch in the movie is the one you do see. Yeah. What's also kind of interesting is that we see a lot of Henry's victims up front. And... We know they belong to Henry. The title is Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. But we do not get any of the scenes leading up to their death. Nope. We just get their corpses and then like a a light audio of like the screams and the trauma of that that period in time when they died. It's when they get the video camera that we get to kind of like start experiencing how it plays out and like how like when he starts to fold Otis into his killings is when we are kind of invited into that point of his life but for the first third of the film we get to meet Henry without the judgment of his actions like we we see his corpses we know that he's they're piling up and he's still murdering people but we see him like have a job we see him interact with the real world we see him meet a new girl and not freak her out like Mm -hmm. we get a chance to like meet him and know him without attributing violence to him. Yeah. I don't know. Does that make sense? I know we we literally see a girl with like a Coke bottle shoved down her mouth and it's disgusting. It's really jarring. Mm -hmm. But you almost, because we do not see it happen, we almost kind of like forget about it. I think that is the best way to describe it because I think that's the key because I think that's how Henry treats it. Henry does something and then it's in the past. It, like whether or not it's going to work and getting paid to like he's not a murderer when he's bugs. not murdering that's exactly it he's not a murderer when he's not murdering he's not a nice guy when he's not talking to becky uh he's you know he's he's not an exterminator when he's not exterminating like that's just it henry is just constantly on the move and is constantly not looking back like even when he talks to otis about killing it's just it's it's done and then it's done like it's it's it happens and then it's over and then it never happened. The scenes when he like veiled threats him, um, when he's just like like he he basically is telling him like nothing happened. Yeah, and it's like a question, are pretty scary because you see Otis getting a little scared and to see Henry like exerting dominance and you're just like why are they partnering up at all? Uh, and it's something that I just I do not understand and I don't think I'll ever get. And so every time we see scenes of them going on these little like sprees I have to watch because I don't know why normally don't you think serial killers are like solitary I mean typically yeah that's 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 how I think of them I don't think that's always necessary and I don't I think with the mo- the majority it's true yeah and I don't think Henry necessarily wants the help like like I'm sure he appreciates having somebody that can hold somebody down when you're invading a house of three people but I don't know. I often wonder, I don't know why they're together. <laughs> I often wonder if it has anything to do with uh, being a very strange apology. Otis attacks his sister in front of Henry, and Henry's not having any part of it. He grabs him by the back of his head. Uh, he tells him like not to act like an asshole, and the whole scene gets real tense. It gets really stiff in there. Yeah, but what? But why does? Uh... See, they go out for a beer, and instead of going for a beer, they go out and get two girls. Henry kills one in the back seat, and then when the other one realizes what's happening, he also kills her uh, while she's basically still in Otis's arms. And 
it's not there, there's no apology like oh hey man sorry i got carried away they just Didn't mean dump to bring them you out of the that. car that's all yeah, they do they just dump him out of the car oh. and then he he knows that like this is not cool for otis so he gets otis to move over because he's driving and then they just take off and then that's where he has this conversation with him about how like look out there otis it's either you or them and like that is definitely like what you were talking about like him basically saying uh like asserting dominance in that's that scenario but he so quickly brings him in and there's no explanation of it. There's no like, oh, I guess you know this about me now. I guess there's no avoiding it. Yeah. It's like, it's almost like his his apology to, to sort of bring him closer to who he is as a person is to start killing with him, mm-hmm. which is bizarre. You know, so the Henry is, is based off Henry Lee Lucas, a very real serial killer who did have a partner who I think oh, really? was also named Otis. And even then, the relationship between the two of them is very muddled and confusing. And it's not certain whether they were in a um, any sort of relationship, whether they were just partners, whether they liked each other, or whether one of them knew anything about the other killings. Like, the whole thing is strange. Like, strange in the way that, you know, Henry Lee Lucas claims to have killed over 300 people. It's strange that, you know, it's almost damn near impossible strange. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a great article uh, on our website, actually, uh, at nofspodcast.com. Uh, one of our writers, Tyler, has a column called Behind the Screams where he talks about the real-life stories that inspired some of your favorite horror movies. And it is a very long, detailed article about Henry Lee Lucas and the life that he lived that inspired this film. And it's probably worth mentioning that this film isn't really based on the facts of Henry Lee Lucas. It's more based on the words of Henry Lee Lucas and how he said that he would kill every day or every other day or sometimes two or three people a day. And he just would kill and move on and, and think nothing of it. But I, I know very little about their the relationship with Otis. And the more I watch this movie, because I've seen this movie a bunch now, I am still not cracking the code about like what makes the two of these guys friends. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't I don't know. They shouldn't like anything about each other. Like, sure, they were friends in prison. Mm-hmm. And I can buy that for a little while. But, like, once we start to really get into Henry's world, Otis is way too cool with it. And Otis also also has his own stuff going on. Like, not even just with his sister, but, like, with the, the high school boy that's buying pot from him. Like, there's... Otis is maybe the most interesting person yeah. in the movie. For all of his awful qualities. <laughs> I don't know. I think Otis, once he's he's opened his eyes up to the fact that he can just be a murderer. Yeah. And he can just kill people. That it's all, it almost becomes a journey in like getting your kicks by doing as devious of things as you possibly can. Like I don't know if he's necessarily into incest or definitely into young teenage boys. But I think the fact that it's wrong and he can just do it anyways Mm. is what begins to be what gets him off. Yeah, it's so strange. You know what I mean? Yeah, and he also has a very big obsession with watching himself do it. And, you know, there is a great scene where the two of them are just like emotionless sitting watching the this family that they've killed. The weirdest thing about that is we have to watch that whole scene where they, um, it's like a home invasion where they... They have the husband tied up and there's a bag over his head and they sexually assault the woman and then they break her neck and then her son comes home. No, her son comes home before they break yeah. her neck and she has to witness him getting his neck broken. It's it's really uncomfortable. But then we pull out. We're not watching it live. We're watching a tape of it and Otis and Henry are watching it 
with stone faces. Yeah. Bored almost. You know, the part of that mo- that part of that whole scene that, that I find most interesting is when Otis starts rewinding it and Henry, very confused, asks him what he's doing. And he's like, I want to watch it again. And it's like, Henry can't understand why he would want to do that. There is still a novelty for him to see what he just did on camera. I think it's just the technology of it. Exactly, exactly. Video cameras are interesting. But then once he realizes that this guy likes to just rewatch over and over in slow motion, frame by frame, uh, Henry doesn't get it. Henry just doesn't understand it. Like, it's just... And that's in, I think that's in him not wanting to look back or like oh, totally. not caring to yeah, look back. Yeah, the novelty was over after the one time. He would probably never rewatch or tape any of his other murders at all. And the thing about his killings too is there's nothing like exciting about them. He doesn't take a lot of, at least from the ones that we get to witness. Because I mean, there was, there's ones at the beginning that have like the... Um, or the housewife with the burns on her and stuff. Yeah, there's, yeah. But, like, he doesn't really take a lot of time. Like, he, he cracks a lot of necks. And he, yeah. And you know what I mean? He's very toss, or, like, murder, and then toss out the car. Yeah. So, I don't see him, even, like, facial expression-wise, taking pleasure out of anything on the planet. Not He's at all. He's just perpetually bored. Totally. And I think that is how you would describe your life if you were a psychopath. Like, if you didn't kill somebody, but you were a clinical psychopath or sociopath, I think you would just feel excruciatingly bored all the time. So what do you think about his relationship with Becky, then? Becky, that's another... This is another reason why this movie is so fucking Tell me about it. These (laughs) relationships are complicated. I don't quite get it. I think he is just polite to her because that's how you're supposed to be to people. Uh, and also, it, it you know, like, I'm sure he's experienced in his life that being polite to people is a nice way to get by and be unrecognizable. Like, if Oh, you're... when he says, I guess I love you in the car, I was just like, oh, oh. fuck, yeah, <laughs> we will get to that scene. Don't worry. I could do a whole podcast on that car oh. drive. But at the beginning, with the with the waitress, he tells her, like, it's a real nice smile you got there. Like, that's a little dated in terms of compliments. But he's just being nice because if he was an asshole and he was rude, she'd remember that a lot more than just the nice guy who tipped her an appropriate amount. Yeah. He just floats by and is unrecognizable to people. But I guess maybe because this is the first instance where he's, like, in closed quarters with a girl who's vulnerable right now. She's left her abusive husband who's now in prison for murder and her kids with her mom. She's in a vulnerable state and the first guy that's decent to her, she kind of falls for him. Yeah. And he doesn't know what to do with that. He really doesn't. And like, like he, that there's is... just not a compartment in his body for like emotion from women. Yeah, he can't handle love. He can't give it. He can't receive it. He does not know what to do with it whatsoever. And it, I think she takes him being shy and unfamiliar, or it's, it's not uncomfortable. It's that he's 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 going into the database, and that that drawer is empty. Like there's mm-hmm. there's no reference card for him to pull from. He doesn't know what to do. Uh, and I think that's part of why he hates Otis so much in the second half of this movie. It's because Otis is mixing the appropriate times to do the appropriate things. Because for Henry, when you're killing, you're a murderer. And when you're exterminating, you're a working man. And when you're at home, you're polite. It's just, it's, there are faces that he has to put on at different situations. Mm -hmm. And it would be absolutely crazy for him to put on his psychopath face while going to get cigarettes. So why the fuck would Otis do it while he's at home with his sister? Like, I think he's just like, you're, you're crossing the streams, man. You don't cross the streams. I also think, I I also think it's fair to assume 
because he also has a mother thing, which is maybe true, maybe it's not true, because there are a lot of stories floating around about what happened to his mom. I love that they address it, though. Um, That he might have an issue with, like, the sexualization of women. Yeah. Or being sexual at all. Like, maybe he is just so purely straight and narrow asexual that is why him and Otis butt heads because Otis is so oh, good point. sexual with his murder, with his sister. Yeah. That that's what Henry's shutting down. Like, that is inappropriate. Like, we are not sexual at women. Yeah. Those are our mothers. We can murder them and talk to them and that is all. <laughs> is the I think there's the woman who's floating in the the, the river with a piece of trash. Um, I think she might be naked, but everybody else, like, there are occasionally corpses that we see they're in various states of undress mm-hmm. but never quite naked. yeah but like the one that had the bottle she is semi-naked but she's wearing like an like a lingerie thing she might have just been she, i think she's a prostitute or something okay so like that still could be a, a punishment for sexualization sure yeah it's like um i do love that they, they address like that complicated history between henry lee lucas the real person and his mother in this movie also because he talks about having killed his mom Otis says he killed her with a bat. Henry says that he stabbed her. And then two minutes later says that he shot her. Um, you know, and Becky calls him on it. And he, it's like he doesn't have a memory for it. Isn't it weird? So that's what I think is I think he just doesn't remember. See, that, so there's two ways to go about it. Either he doesn't remember because he's killed so many people and none of them actually mattered to him. Even the one that should, like his mother, like realistically, like the the... The well, story that, sh- that you technically would have. that's the first. He was fourteen. Yeah, and it seems like that's the one that has some sort of emotional charge behind it. Like the rest of them almost seem like crimes of opportunity or crimes like he can take their money because he doesn't really seem to work a whole lot. Even or he- TV. Or- <laughs> yeah, or TV. You know, um, but the mother should be the one that has like a strong memory tied to it. Mm-hmm. And either he has killed so many people that he literally doesn't remember, or it didn't mean anything to him when he did it. Or my favorite theory. He never killed his mother, and that's why he kills so many women. And I think that's partly true about Maniac also. Like, his mother left him, and he's mad about it, and he wants to punish her for leaving him. And the only, like the ultimate does, punishment He will is never have the opportunity of killing her. Himself. So all of these women are proxies. Yes, exactly. So I think that's that's part of it with, uh, with Henry. But then you would almost expect him to do that all himself then, because there is a reason for it. A very personal reason. So, like, why bring Otis into like, it? Yeah, it's 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 any one of those things. It's like asking somebody how they got their scars. You know, like you're not gonna you're not gonna get the right answer. Yeah, I think yeah, the answer is either boredom or like asexual anger. And it's crazy. Not that I think you're angry if you're asexual, but I think he's tying a lot of his uh, emotional connection to the world to his relationship with his mother. And yeah, yeah, because like he can't. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a very thin curtain between Becky Henry and a sleeping Otis. But, like, he really is so uncomfortable when she is trying to get his clothes off. Like, like more uncomfortable than when he comes in and Otis is raping her. He knows what to do in those moments, right? Like, he leaves to go buy cigarettes, comes back. Otis is raping her on the floor. He knows what to do. Kill him. Like, that is, that is a mode he can snap into, yeah. no problem. Yeah, and the crazy thing, too, is that that scene is so charged because it is, um, it's the first time, like, we've had the opportunity to fall in love with a female character in this movie that gets murdered. <laughs> and she's being wronged by her own brother, but then Henry kills him, and then Henry's instantly in Henry the serial killer mode, and he drags Otis to the tub, and he starts cutting off his head and his limbs and throwing them in garbage bags. And 
Becky is forgotten because she's like he got her to be quiet basically so he could think. Yeah. And she is like needing therapy in the other room, mm-hmm. but he's got to he's doing the body part and stuff. Yep. He's got other stuff to take care of. Yeah. Yeah, she is such a sad character. Oh, I just feel so bad for it's her. It's so bad. Like I she do- she literally leaves her her husband, who's like crazy abusive, and gets the fuck out of town. She leaves her daughter with her mother, and she goes to Chicago, where her brother is, to sort of gain some money, bring her bring her daughter home to Chicago, and and start a new life. Like she is doing everything she can to avoid a horrible past, and and Otis is no better. Otis is maybe worse. Than her shitty husband. She went to live with a serial killer and a horn dog brother. Yeah, and who a has serial no killer boundaries. Entry. Yeah. Oh man. She, uh, did, she didn't. She didn't know that when she came. But, you know. So mm-hmm. I want to talk about the ending, and I want to talk about like from Becky's perspective and from Henry's perspective, but I want your take on it. You want me to talk first? Yes. Like I want to know because I honestly I don't think I know what the fuck happened. And the end was like when we. We zoom in. I'm just like, oh my god, I was fooled. I was foiled. Sure. Um, Even when I've seen it, I'm foiled. <laughs> so uh, Henry just, and Becky leave the apartment. They're planning to go stay. They're just getting the fuck out of town because previously she had talked to him about going back home, where wherever home is, somewhere in the Midwest, I would think, and getting her daughter and the three of them just living there on the farm. Until they had to kill Otis and get out of town real quick. So on the way out of town, they drop Otis's bridge off. They drop Otis's body off a bridge, and uh, and then we are in the greatest short film ever made. If this was released to a festival, just the sequence of them in the car, it would be an award-winning short. I think this is like Oscar contention for for writing and cinematography and performances. It is so fucking good. Like they're just sitting there, both shell shocked. And Henry asks, like, do you, do you want me to turn on the radio? Cause like, what the fuck else are you supposed to do in that scenario? But also like, it's in the past. Henry's over it. He doesn't care. But you know, maybe she's bored or something. Maybe she's uncomfortable. Would you would you like the radio? And then that's where they start having this discussion about how awful things have been and how she can't get over it. And she's trying to be hopeful. She is looking toward the future. Um, and, you know, like, we'll, we'll go stay with your sister. We'll hang out with the horses. My daughter will be there. Yeah. And Everything I don't think she, great. like, she doesn't blame him or anything. Like, he's he's basically got gotten off with, like, Becky still has gold stars in her eyes for she him. Did, he defended her. Yeah. Maybe a little more aggressively than than she would have liked. But, you know, in some ways... Henry didn't necessarily have a choice. He didn't intend to kill Otis initially, but Otis definitely started trying to kill Henry, and Becky stabbed him in the eye, and Henry just finished the job. It is a uncomfortable stabbing to watch, by the by. Yeah. It looks so good in a bad way. <laughs> but, um... But yeah, then they they check into a motel. Like, I'm just... I'm glossing over, like, the, the greatest short film ever made, but seriously, like, <laughs> oh my god. It All is caps. The, gra- the greatest short film greatest ever made. Greatest short film ever made. <laughs> oh. And then, like, we just... We pull out away from the car, and everything goes out of focus, and it's just... Uh, that, that is a brilliant turn. I love it, because we check into a hotel, um, and then they basically just go to sleep for the night. In the morning, we wake up, we watch, uh, we watch Henry doing his morning routine, he puts his bags in the car, he leaves... Then he drops a suitcase off at the side of the road. And if we're doing this all from Henry's perspective, he at some point has killed Becky, either in the morning or at night, chopped her body up in the tub, put it in a suitcase, 
and left it on the side of the road and he takes off. I don't really know what to do with my perspective. Uh, I I think Henry decides that he's going to kill Becky. In that drive. I don't even think it's in the drive. Because, yeah, there is that great moment where she says, I love you, Henry. And (laughs) he says, "I, I guess I love you, too. And then he asks her if she wants to listen to the radio. Like, it is just the fucking, like, most brilliant book ending to a weird scene. I love it. <laughs> but no, like, we, we go from there, like, in terms of visual shots, we cut to the, the poster or the cover that you've always seen for the movie where Henry in, like, a salmon bathroom is staring into a mirror, just, like, looking into his own eyes. I think that's where he decides he's going to kill Becky. Mm. Because she's off in the other room, and now he's escaped, he's on the move, he's thinking about his next plans and what he needs to do. Uh, actually, you know what? I'm going to nix that. I'm I'm not going to say that he's thinking about his next plans or what he needs to do, but he does decide that he doesn't want Becky around at some point. And in the morning, yeah, we see him shave and stuff, but there's no mention of Becky because she's not in the picture anymore. The difference between Henry and Becky is that Becky is planning for a future and Henry is not. And I think that is where they really butt heads. Yeah. Because she's talking about what we're going to do next and what we're going to do there and how things are gonna go and everything's gonna need be to get my great. daughter and yeah and henry is just a next five minutes guy like and that's all he's thinking about so for him to sit and plan about a future um is is not something that his brain necessarily handles he doesn't think about the past he sure as shit doesn't think about the future yeah so and i guess if he thinks about her long enough to be like oh she's investing she's gonna become more of a liability and more yeah, luggage basically yeah so he leaves her. It's dark. It's real dark. And I'm glad we don't see her death. I think that I think that is Well, I think it's in line with the rest of the movie also. We don't really see anybody that he kills to a degree. Like, uh, like solo. Yeah. Yeah. And it also I think makes it resonate more that she never really actually meant anything to him. The fact that he's able to do yeah. like a morning routine and just get in his car and he's so calm and just going about his day that we're like wait where's where's becky yeah and then we find out where she is yeah but there's nothing monumental about her absence exactly from the perspective of henry yeah he's he is a clinical psychopath he does not see a difference between between her and a television like that is that is it like there is, there's nothing. There's, I mean, there's even a great scene where Otis kicks a TV in, and you would think like Henry has more of a reaction to that. They, they, they have the exact same reaction to the death of a television as they do to the death of an entire family. Yeah, I think they were more mad about the TV. Yeah, I don't know, but uh, she meant nothing to him. Nobody means anything to him. And the whole movie, I just want. I don't know why, but like, I just want them. To fall in love. Like, I want her to save him. <laughs> you know, it's it's so funny. I was talking to somebody the other day who knows nothing about either of these movies. Uh, and I, I was describing it like, oh, I watched this movie last night, Maniac. And it's about this guy, kills some people, puts their scalps on mannequins and stuff. And I said, I, I love watching these movies with Kim because... <laughs> there is an introduction of a female character who shows some interest in him and you know despite how awful this guy is she's like i just want him to get his act right so they can be together <laughs> like there's there's so- i just don't want him to murder her that's, that's it you just you just like oh maybe love will save the day <laughs> <laughs> and not that i want women to fall in love with serial killers but in a movie if you can if you can change him, maybe you can survive. <laughs> yeah, not even necessarily just for Becky, just for the sheer fact that like clearly no good guy 
is coming to save the day. And if if an abstract thing like love can be the good guy that gives us a happier ending than just cutting somebody's body up and leaving them on the side of the road, I'll take it. Um, and that's fine. Like, I, I feel the same way too, but like sometimes, oh, sometimes I want a trip to the dark side of town and that's, that's where my love for movies like Maniac and Henry come from. Oh boy. I want those character studies. If this... If these movies were not from the perspective of the killer, it w- they would not be nearly as effective or enjoyable to watch. If I don't was... know if Henry is from the perspective of Henry. You don't think so? I mean, I can see how you see that it is, especially with the fact that he doesn't look back and like how all the kills are vignettes at the beginning. But I think it has something to do with setting up the audience's relationship to Henry. Uh, okay, you're right. Because there, there are definitely plenty of scenes in this movie where... We see Otis and we see Becky out on their own. It's not just Henry's story. Yeah, like when Becky gets her job. Yeah. She's just like, oh, that, that, that is the hardest thing about Becky too, right? Like she, it's it's a very standard. If this was any other movie, if this was any other movie, she is Julia Roberts in a Julia Roberts story. Oh yeah, she would have cut the hair by, of some guy. Like, like oh, the, the waitress, waitress. Oh, the, the hairstylist is out having a cigarette and I need my hair cut now. Like, I'm just the shampoo girl. I can't do this. Yeah. And then she cuts a billionaire's like hair. Like sleeping with the enemy. Like her husband comes back and she murders him after he straightens all the cans. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. See? I told you I remember the important things about movies. Yeah, that's true. Oh, man. That was so strange. We got to do that in the podcast sometime. We do. <laughs> we actually really should. Yes. We should just, what do we call it? Like, sexy thriller. Is that even a sexy thriller? Well, that was definitely toward the end. I don't know if it's a sexy thriller. I think it's just like a dark thriller. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, it's definitely not. Thriller for women. I mean, I'm sure there's a love I get all thrillers are for women. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've made I've made this point before and I'm sticking by it especially if we do that episode the only the biggest the biggest difference between thrillers and horrors is whether or not you sleep with the killer before they try and kill you. I mean I'm sure they exist but like I can't come up with any right now. No, I guess I'm just, <laughs> just Like I think you're right. What? <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh are you ready to get to ratings on Henry or are there any other scenes you want to talk about? Uh, I kind of wanted to figure out a movie we were going to pair with Sleeping with the Enemy, but uh, I guess we can skip to ratings. I, I, I don't necessarily have any other specific scenes that I want to talk about. The movie is, is freaking great. And if you haven't seen it or you've avoided it, um, if you're planning on avoiding it based on, um, based on how, you know, Maniac went and whatnot, it is, it is a great artistic movie uh, that is a character study of a very horrible person. I mean, there's a few sequences that are pretty hard to watch. We kind of talked about them, but... Overall, like, it's, apart from those moments, there's a lot that's pretty, like, normal about it. Most of the film takes place at a kitchen table. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's part of it. I think it's supposed to be that for a person who murders, let's say for a living, what they do is normal, and most of their day is normal, except for when they're murdering. And even then, because they do it so much, it kind of becomes normal. Like, it's it's always under the surface. Mm-hmm. It's just right there. It could happen at any point. Um, but it doesn't, because there's no reason to. So it's unpredictable. And maybe and- that's why he brings Otis in, because it's become so normal to him that it's almost like he doesn't know enough to keep it secret anymore. I don't even know. Yeah. There's, there's always more to talk about by the time we get to it at the end of an episode, but whatever. I think uh, we just, it's because we come out of this not knowing any, not with any definitive conclusions or answers well we're everything is a question yeah we're workshopping our essays as we talk about the movie (laughs) so by the time we get to the end like no no i got plenty more to say now that i've actually thought about it 
But uh, no, we'll skip to ratings. I'll go first, and I'm giving this another 3.5 out of 4. I think this is a fucking amazing movie. I'm surprised you didn't give it a 4. I'm, I'm surprised I didn't give them both 4s <laughs> out of 4. Like, I'll be real with you. Like, as, again, as far as Grindhouse Horror goes, this is a 4 out of 4 in terms of Grindhouse movies. But like, yeah, sure, it's not... It's not as clean as you'd like it to be. Like some of the performance aren't performances aren't as perfect. It doesn't necessarily. There are some moments where it feels like they're walking in and out of a scene. Like they're just like, "This is the kitchen set," and they walk. They like, "Let's go to the thing," and then they all walk off the screen. Yeah. Like, like you just you, you can see the the constraints of the film in it. But big fucking deal. Um, it's amazing. I love it, and uh, I'm gonna give it a three point five out of four. I am going to give Henry a three out of four. Cool. Um, this one does have its scenes. It is very hard to watch at times, but the this one very obviously poses a lot of questions to its audience. So it, in that sense, like it feels like it has, I don't want to say more merit than Maniac, but... I see what you're saying. I'm able to... You don't think a movie like Maniac has anything to say, but Henry definitely seems like a uh, medical analysis through film. Mm. Okay. I think what Maniac is, Maniac's message is in its visceralness, whereas the like the trauma and stuff that we witness in Henry is so we better learn who Henry is. It's almost like evidence to speculate what kind of killer he is and who he is. But in, in Maniac, it almost feels like a commentary on violence in cinema and, like, the merits of violence. I don't know. That's fine. That's fine. Whatever. You like one more than the other. It's great. It's what movie watching's all about. And Henry gives you a break. You have characters that you can like. Like, I like Becky. Yeah. And I want to see her survive this scenario, and I want her to see her get back with her kid and stuff. So, like, there, we have a final girl in this. Sure. sure. Even if she doesn't necessarily make it out in the end, we have somebody to root for, and we have, like, a moral center in this film. I could buy that. Yeah. 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 I think Maniac by Design is a very insulated film that doesn't want to acknowledge the world around it. The world that Frank lives in in Maniac is pretty fucking horrible. And you would say the same thing about Otis and Henry, but we have Becky, who's who's there to bring the real world in. Mm-hmm. But that's just our opinion. Let us know what you thought of William Lustig's Maniac and John McNaughton's Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer over on Twitter at nofspodcast.com in the horror movie Twitter at nofspodcast.com? Twitter at twitter.com slash nofspodcast. Uh, or just at NOFS Podcast. That's usually how you look for people on social media. On Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash horror fiends of NOFS. And of course, you can always find us on Reddit, the Nightmare on Film Street subreddit, r slash Nightmare on Film Street. Yeah, and like John was saying earlier in the episode, if you're into these uh, dark movies inspired by serial killers, check out Tyler Listen's column Behind the Screams at NOFSpodcast.com. You can just search it in the search bar. There are tons of really great analysis of these types of films that have very dark, true inspiration. Yeah, ranging from Henry Lee Lucas to the Salem Witch Trials. It's, it's all there. Check it out. Highly, highly recommend it. We are controlling transmission. Have a trouble with a Nightmare on Film Street is brought to you by Baphomet and Co. Small batch soap inspired by horror and the macabre. This week's pick is the Dybbuk Box, the mystery gift set. 
Feeling brazen, curious, eager to conjure a little mystery? Baphomet & Co.'s Dybbuk Box contains an array of Baphomet & Co. curated scents, soaps, and bath products that will remain a complete mystery until the box arrives at your door. Get 10% off your order with the code NIGHTMARE at baphometandco.com. That's 10% off with code NIGHTMARE. Baphomet & Co. Made by hands, sometimes severed. Want to reach the cool creeps? Advertise with Nightmare on Film Street to get your brand out of the shadows. For more information, head to nofspodcast.com slash advertise. We're going to stick around for a few more minutes and play a little game that I've put together uh, in tandem with this week's discussion of cold-blooded killers. You can get that minigame and every other bonus minigame we record for each episode, as well as drive home from the drive-in reviews of movies playing in the theater right now at patreon.com slash nightmare on film street we drop a new episode every thursday and a full-length episode every other thursday so be sure to subscribe if you aren't already so you can get the next one in your feed we're available on apple Podcasts, spotify wherever you're grabbing this episode but until next time i'm kim i'm john stay Stay creepy. creepy it appears you made it out alive just long enough to tell the tale of the nightmare on Film Street. Ow! Help us grow the horde. Leave a review on iTunes or wherever you subscribe. Continue this week's conversation on Twitter by following at NOFS Podcast. And as always, more terror can be found lurking on our website www.nightmareonfilmstreetpodcast.com until next week stay creepy fiends when you visit arizona time is measured in moments not minutes like the moment you see the grand canyon for the first time Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.